This is the Plucked Chicken Podcast. We are back in the Plucked Chicken studio, and we continue on today with John chapter 4. This is largely taken up by a single long episode uh, between Jesus and the the woman, at, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well uh, of Jacob. And I think a handy breaking point would be at verse 42. So this is an awful lot of text to get out in front of people. And I think if we um, have a good reading that's uh, nice and slow and, and um, dramatic, that will uh, help everybody follow along. Then that means Pastor Okri needs to read it. Indeed. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father, in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say... There are yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, 
and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Person could jump into this episode at just about any single point, and it's amazing how this tessera is filled with even multiple little tessera inside of it. It is. At the very end, we get this thematic thing that you pointed out earlier in chapter three that faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You know, Christ is in their midst. And it's not because he's in their midst that they believe. It's because of the word that he speaks. And just to stay right there at the ending of this narrative, I know we want to go back and just go through it, but I found it so amazing. He stays there two days. I mean, think about the other disciples. They're just flabbergasted that he's talking to this woman. Now we're going to stay here in this area with these people eating in their home, eating their food for two days, you can begin to see the the distinction between this uh, Jew and Greek and Gentile, all that. You can begin to see how the church is starting to crumble that foundation. Good. And this in connection with baptism. To, to miss the baptismal undertones and maybe even overtones in this text is to is to just completely miss it. But there are bookends on this on this episode. Uh, the first bookend on the front end is John 4, 1 through 3, where we get this notice about who's doing the baptizing. And the second bookend, uh, just before the whole thing is finished up, is in like verses uh, 37 and 38, where um, Jesus is talking about the disciples harvesting what they hadn't labored for. That's how they're doing it. In other words, we as pastors reap the harvest through the administration of baptism that the Lord Jesus himself labored for. Even though it doesn't say that these Samaritan believers were baptized, if it starts out by saying Jesus didn't do the baptizing but the disciples did, you can pretty much bet that they were like the Ethiopian eunuch. I mean, they've had Jesus there for two days. They're hanging on to his words. I'm sure at some point somebody said, where's the wadi? Right. And they've got the well. Yeah. And the disciples say, we can do this. We are here for you because the field is white for harvest. That's that's excellent, actually. That's that's really, really wonderful. Well, and I think that makes it very evident that this is not metaphorical living water. They're not just sitting around like, oh, hearing Jesus is the living water. No, he's literally putting, they're literally putting the living water on them. It is a water that they never need to come to again. It's a once once for all baptism for the forgiveness of sins, for the washing away. And they're like, Where the, where's the living water at? And they're going to point. They're going to say, there it is with the promise of God attached to it. It's It's not a mystical thing. It's a physical thing that they have. I love what you just said. Uh, the, it, it's a once for all washing away of sin. Compare the two waters. One water you drink and you're thirsty again. The other water you have and wells of eternal life bubble up in you and you never need to drink it again. This is a this is a, an excellent text to point to for uh, the one baptism. What you're saying though, if one walks away from your baptism and you want to really recommit, you don't have to be baptized again? Correct. You're saying then if somebody is baptized as a baby and is given the seal and the promises and the forgiveness of sins, they don't have to decide for Jesus when they can figure that out and be baptized again? Correct. Wow. Is this why the Nicene Creed says we believe in one baptism? Correct. Is this why we baptize infants? Because it gives them the gift that lasts into eternity? Because God is the one who wants to give the infant the gifts? Correct. Wow, there's a real unity going on it's here, a, real real <laughs> harmony. Yeah. Now, another thing about this baptism that's very interesting is that it is connected with repentance and faith. Uh, so uh, the water that Jesus wants to give, this water that wells up to everlasting life, as soon as he offers it, 
what he says is, go call your husband. He knows that she's a, a scamp, if for lack of a better term. And so for whom is this washing of regeneration? It's for those who are sinners. And we exercise ourselves in our baptism daily through contrition and repentance and letting the Lord draw the new man out of the water. Maybe we can go back and set the stage for them coming into uh, Samaria, what time of day it is, you know, all of those things. Because I think that certainly helps us to unpack things a little bit. Uh, my understanding, and you see this in other places with Jesus, is if you want to go from Galilee to Judea or Judea to Galilee, you don't take the, the Samarian shortcut. You go outside, you go across the, the Jordan to the Transjordan, and then you travel up that way and you cross back again because it's a very unclean land and you just, you got to mind your P's and Q's in there and it's better just to avoid it entirely. That in itself is fascinating because of the fact that there has just been this dispute about cleansing, hasn't there? Yeah. About purification. And Jesus goes into the most impure thing a Jew could imagine in their kind of um, spiritual geography, which is Samaria. And even that can't withstand the purification that Jesus brings. And this is a break that happens in all of the Gospels. You, you see a ministry to the Jews, and that, of course, is his primary focus. But there's always a secondary ministry that happens with non-Jewish people, uh, Samaritans, Canaanites, uh, just Gentiles in general. And you are getting this picture, right? Jews first, but the entire world, and we've just been told that, right? All things were under his authority. He came for the whole world. And we're getting a picture of that. He's not going to limit himself. And these disciples are about to get a very important lesson in exactly what his cleansing and, and, and the words that he bring, who they are meant for. You're right. Let me just go down the same road that Pastor Kearns went down before. So do you mean that Jesus died for those who are cohabiting? Yes. Do you mean that Jesus died for those who have committed the sin of murder? Yes. Do you mean that Jesus died for those who have uh, used their tongue in, in a most egregious fashion to tear down people and destroy reputations? Yes. Do you mean that Jesus died for those who have become caught up in the sin of homosexuality? Yes. And I'll go even one further because there's one bad guy that we, that we measure all people to. Jesus died for Hitler. Right, and Jeffrey Dahmer and Judas. And, and name, name the worst person you can think of. Jesus died for them. And sometimes we find that repugnant, but it's a great comfort. <laughs> it is. It's a wonderful comfort. But let's go a step further here. Yeah. You know, here we've got a Samaritan woman. So she has a false, she's an idolater, number one. Number two, she lives a morally dissolute life, the, the kind of which only like a like a hetaira prostitute in Athens would have lived. I mean, this is for for this region to live like this is what everybody would have thought. Oh, this is the dregs. Yeah. Okay, and and yet Jesus comes to her. But here's the point: Does he say, you know, woman, I'm going to baptize your sin? No. No. He, he accuses her in her sin. He does. catches her out in her sin. I want to just push a, a step further. You know. The time is coming, and it may already have come, where maintaining the moral stance of Scripture toward society is going to blackball the preaching of, of Missouri Synod pastors. To maintain that homosexuality is a sin is probably, even by some of our people, thought to be a quaint, old-fashioned notion. Um, right? Or hateful. Or I mean, hateful, I, I or think hate, I, whatever, I, yes. Even within our own church, yeah. I think we run into that. But there is no way that, we, that it's possible, apart from repentance from sin, to receive the grace of God. Because the grace of God is for sinners. For, it's not for those who don't recognize their own sin. Jesus won't baptize and bless sin, and nor can we. For we are not, our own, we are not free agents. We are bound by Christ to do what Christ would have us do. And that is critically important. And... This is a place where we will certainly obey God rather than men, but it is sometimes grating on our on a sinner's ears to actually say, 
yeah, I know this actual particular sin, we care about this and we want, we want to confront it in your life. I think, you know, I, I've run into this time and time again. The average sinner, the average person in a congregation is pretty willing to admit they're sinners. Uh, they are less willing to admit that they are sinning in a specific specific way because they build up a whole pile of justifications for that sin. Well, pastor, you don't understand. This, that, or the other thing has to be happening. And so this can't be wrong. And, and, and pastorally, we say, well, I understand why this, that, and the other thing are happening. And I understand why you are in the situation you're in. I'm just bringing God's word to bear on this situation. And even if you have reasons and rationales for it it's still sin <laughs> repent and be forgiven i mean that's the i mean it, it's it's not like he makes her walk through the street with a red a on her uh, on her blouse or anything like that he simply acknowledges the sin and it, she, it, she does something kind of amazing which we're kind of scared of doing she goes and says you all know who i am i mean it's like he he knew everything about me he knew he knew the stuff that you guys all know and he loved me anyway <laughs> And through that repentance, right? And we don't see this repentance as being this huge thing. We just see it as her like, yep, I'm no more justifications. That was bad. And that is bad. She says, but, and she's always pointing to Jesus with her witness, right? He, he knew, right? Not look at me, look at how different I am. But he knew and he still loved me and forgave me. And they came to him and he talked to them about their sin and forgave them. And they were like, well, now we believe not on account of you being forgiven, but on account of us being forgiven, right? Which is what church is. It's the place where we come with our sins, acknowledged and, and confessed and forgiven. He who receives the witness has put the seal on the fact that God is true. Yes, yeah. And, and so we can never deny the truth of God in these things. So do we want to walk through the narrative? Sure. We've got these introductory remarks about baptism and the geography, and then it even narrows in further here for Jacob's well, which is actually still there today. Um, you've got this woman who church history actually names her uh, Saint Votini. I did not know that. Nor I. So here's Saint Votini. She, well, she's not Saint Votini at this point. Yet. Right. She's just Votini. Just at the very outset here, Jesus and the disciples, and Jesus through the disciples is baptizing in Judea, which is what we had at the end of chapter 3. But now the Pharisees find out about this, and they find out that Jesus is getting more followers than John is now. And that is a reason, that is the reason given for why Jesus now goes back to what you would call his, his home turf. He's leaving the Judean wilderness and taking the direct route to Galilee. And my question is, why is the attention of the Pharisees pushing him back to Galilee? Where, where do you get the attention of the Pharisees? Now, when Jesus Verse learned one. that the Pharisees had oh, heard I see. that okay, Jesus sorry, was I'm making sorry. and baptizing okay. more disciples yeah. than John, yep. gotcha. that was the reason. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. I, I just think it's in, interesting. and mm -hmm. But you, you also know that from elsewhere, when the Pharisees come to even John, it's not a friendly meeting. You brood of vipers. <laughs> who warned you? Who, who brought you here? But they're spying on him, right? And he's not quite ready for the confrontation with the Pharisees that's going to be forthcoming. I, I'm, I'm just, it, it's an interesting catalyst is all I'm saying. So here we have... This woman, who she's coming out at the sixth hour, 12 o'clock, high noon. She's, as you said earlier, Pastor Brush, she's most likely forfeited based upon her lifestyle and her sin. She's forfeited her respectability. So she comes out in the, the heat of the day. All the other women who are drawing water are going out in the morning or evening when it's and cooler. And it's a very social, social function, everybody. All these women chit-chatting. So here's Jesus in his humanity. He's wearied and requests her to draw him some water. He's by himself. The disciples have left. The Samaritan woman obviously knows the way that Jews and Samaritans interact. She's shocked that she's being confronted by him. The text makes it very clear they have no dealings with the Samaritans. 
And Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Well, certainly, this is water vivified by the Spirit. This is the water of baptism that Jesus is talking about. And, and you know, for, for us to say, to, to assert that at this point in time, if you're tuning into this for the first time and uh, you haven't heard any of the stuff that we've talked about in chapters 1, 2, and 3, this assertion is going to strike you as totally wild. Uh, but if you uh, understand the case that John has been making for baptism, uh, from from chapter one already, uh, where Jesus Himself is baptized, uh, then you'll clearly understand what we're saying. And the way that this is interpreted in so many evangelical circles is this: living water is where you get really, really passionate for Jesus. Isn't that sad. It's the bubbles that Pastor Oakery was talking about last time, isn't it? Well, and it's the fact that the old Adam loves to be active. What Jesus is giving, he truly is giving. It is, it is where one receives it. This one is, you better get hyped up for Jesus. It's metaphorical water, which means it's completely uncertain water. Yeah, you can make it, uh, well, we've talked about it before, the, the wax nose. You can mold it and shape it however you want it to be shaped. What Jesus is going to do here, he's going to give a little bit more detail than he does with Nicodemus. Now think, that is fascinating. Here you've got a teacher, the teacher of Israel, and he only gives this much information. Here you got this scampy Samaritan woman, and he's going to give her so much more. Even more so, she's going to be converted. She's going to be an evangelist to her hometown. She's going to be remembered in church history. It's just fascinating to me that it's a, a little bit clearer tessera than, say, the tessera with Nicodemus. That is very interesting. And going to your going to your gift thing that you had talked about earlier, well, actually, it's not your gift thing. It's, it's your getting revved up for Jesus business. I just don't know how you do that uh, when you get to verse 14. Whosoever drinks from the water which I will give to him, will not thirst unto eternity. But the water which I give to him will become in him a well of water leaping up unto everlasting I'll life. I'll tell you how. They don't relate baptism to salvation. So, so what is the thing that wells up unto... So is it, is it your fervence for the Lord yes. that, that, that becomes your ticket into heaven? Your piety, your fervency, your passion. Yes. Good Lord. But, that can, but from this context, that can never stop. You have to be constantly fervent and pious. And Thank you. You just explained the first 40 years of my life. Thank you. Thank you. Well, my wife always called that the uh, evangelical treadmill. It's like further faster but you're getting nowhere right and it's like we, you keep turning it up because you have to you have to keep turning it up but it's awful it is awful but again think about how i mean who wouldn't want this living water just like the woman says who wouldn't want springs of water welling up for eternal life yeah she's no dummy she says i'll take that and see we in the evangelical congregation listening to these false teachers or these heterodox teachers we wanted it too. So it didn't matter what they said. If they said go out and sell candy bars, then damn it, we're going to go sell candy bars because this is what we want. It's not just misleading, it's damning. It, it is. is. And, and, and you know the, the problem in the Roman Catholic Church is much the same, uh, that baptism is not the gift that keeps on giving. It's the gift that gets you on the bottom rung of the ladder. Yeah. Um, and you kind of take a few steps up, sin, drop down, get a little bit more grace. And so so there's absolutely no certainty. When you talk to most Roman Catholics, I, and I don't know how evangelicals answer this question. I just don't hang around. Probably the same way. Do you know you're going to be saved? So this is the question. Do you know you're going to, are you going to go to heaven when you die? And most Roman Catholics will answer, I, I don't know. That's exactly the way the Muslim would answer. I love, or yeah. Roman Catholics, I would hate to presume on Christ. You can presume on him where he actually gives you the answer. <laughs> and but here the very the very words themselves, right? It is it is a well of water leaping up. So the thing that leaps up is the water. So the water's in there. 
And it, that's the thing that leaps up unto everlasting life, that springs into everlasting life. It is the gift of salvation, uh, what we receive in baptism, and not the gift of starting off. Yeah. Not a turning of the page? No. What's amazing to me, is, and what we're critiquing here, is that it strikes me that these other Christian traditions ignore Jesus' own answer. She says, I want the water. And he says, great, you're a sinner, <laughs> right? It's not, all right, well, you better start clapping your hands and reaching up into the sky for, for me. He says, okay, we're going to talk about the hard stuff now. This is how you get it. Go, get, go bring your husband to me. She didn't hem and haw. She goes, eh, well, she does. She's like, well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have a husband. And he says, yeah, I know your heart. I know your filthy, sinful heart. I know why you're here at this time of day. I know you better than you know yourself. This makes me think of Adam. You know, Adam who is in the Imago Dei, he can look at something, he can see it, and he can know it. He looks at the animals, knows their complexity, doesn't have to dissect them to understand how they work. He can be awakened from this sleep that the Lord puts him in and immediately sees Eve and says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He doesn't have to go over and... Oh, my rib is gone. Right. He automatically can see inside of her. Okay, here's the second Adam. He can see inside of this woman. He knows her life. He knows her proclivities. He knows her sin. But it also reminds me of God's own patience with Adam after the fall. He doesn't just say, sinner. He says, Adam, where are you? He knows, just like he knows with this woman. And he's constantly dealing this with us in a way. He's not pointing the finger and just telling us who we are. He is trying to bring us to a place where we realize who we are. And, and he knows the guilt and the shame this woman has, despite all of her excuses, despite all of her rationale, right? Woman's got to eat. Woman's got to have a house. This is fine. But he knows that this is literally killing her. And he just says, get your husband. And it just, her, her house of cards comes tumbling down in that moment. But I would argue that there was a dodge here. He says this to her, Jesus accurately says what's going on in her life. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So let's talk about something else. <laughs> I, I agree. That seems like a real dodge on her part. Yeah, she wants to talk yeah. about like she wants to talk about religion. Mm -hmm. As much as I don't want to use that word, she wants to she wants to get into the weeds. I I, I just take it as a Somewhat of a crafty dodge, going back to what you you said, we heard you walking in the cool of the day and we hit ourselves. Yeah. I mean, they didn't want to deal with the sin. They, right. I think that's so often the case. I mean, as a pastor, when I confront somebody in their sin, I expect them on the on the outset to want to swerve around that, right? Let's 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 take a detour. And just like Jesus, let that happen. Because you've you've said the piece, you've the law is there and it's doing its work even if it's maybe not being expressed verbally. So he lets her take the detour because he understands this is painful for her. And he walks with her down the detour. Yes. He, he doesn't just say, wait a second, you, you totally missed what I just got through saying. You want to dodge? I can play that game. We can go in that direction. Mm -hmm. And he actually uses it, you know, to again communicate who he is. Right. 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 Yeah. What is the significance here is that we have these two mountains do we want to talk a little bit about why the Samaritans are different? Sure. In the Old Testament, there's these two kingdoms that split. There's Israel and, and, and Judah. Uh, Judah endures into the Babylonian captivity, but Israel is destroyed in a much more complete way. By the Assyrians. By the Assyrians. The Assyrians lead the, the people off, and this is the, this is the diaspora. The, these Jews get spread out across the, the region, across the world. But there's this interesting piece where uh, the Assyrians would bring in uh, people from another land to govern over that land because they still want to reap the benefits of it. And wild beasts, lions, were eating people. And they were like, whoa, the god of this land is angry. So we better send back some Jewish 
priests who would have been kind of a perverted Jewish priest because they would have been a part of the Israel worship system, which had which did not worship in, in Jerusalem. So there's already a perversion there. And then they come back and they get influenced by some of the other religious aspirations of the Assyrians. And so it's Jewish adjacent, but it's certainly not Jewish. And one of the things that they clearly do is they locate worship in places where worship is not supposed to be located. And that was a problem for Israel from the get-go. Um, they, had, they had Bethel, and they had a temple up in the territory of Dan. Which is in the far north. Far north. Which was, well, and that's a whole different thing. Dan wasn't even supposed to be there. But they said, our, our land is full of Philistines, so let's just move up here. And it's a whole story. But, and and it, it's always amazing to me. Do you... Do you know what they put in their temples to worship the one true God? Yes. The bulls. Calves. Golden calves. It's amazing. They were like, this has never made God angry before. (laughs) So clearly their worship is deeply flawed already. And then it gets this mishmash of stuff. And so now they're like, well, this mountain's good enough because this this mountain, if this mountain was good enough for the patriarchs, who they still connect themselves to, it's good enough for us. We don't need the temple mount. And the Jews were like, I mean, God's in his, God is in his holy temple. <laughs> and there's only one holy temple that we have right now. Um, even if that temple had been destroyed and rebuilt in, in, a less, um, in a less grand way. So this is the big problem is they have a shared history with the Jews, but... But a corrupted practice and belief system. Right. It's a, that was a wonderful explanation, I thought. That, that was succinct and to the point. That was, uh, that was lovely. Every once in a while, I can do that. Well, that, that was good. But long and short, they are heretics. These guys are like LDS or Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever to Christians. These people are not Jewish. And there's no pretending that they are. They kind of aspire to be seen as properly Jewish. But the Jews know it. And Jesus himself affirms it. He affirms it and says, the, the Jews worship what they know. You worship something utterly unknown. You're, you're reaching out in the dark, which means you don't got it. Whereas the Jews have it. And salvation comes from the Jews. This is what I love in the uh, liturgy, where we talk about the glory of thy people Israel. Right. This goes back to that whole definition of uniqueness. Out of all of the other countries of the world... Salvation's going to come through the Jews. And this is what he—it's it, not coming through uh, this Samaritan false worship. Yeah. It's close, but it's not good enough. And that's important because we do have a lot of—like, we're all, we're all winding our way to Jesus. Bogus. No. The Bible has no space for that. If the Samaritans aren't winding their way to Jesus on their own with this mountain, then no one is. And— that notion that we're just we're just all stumbling around in the dark. We're not. Some of us actually live in the light. And that light, the dividing line is Christ himself. And Christ comes and draws this woman and this community into that light by pointing out that the temple is not the final thing. No, and this picks up actually the beginning of chapter two. Uh, actually the second second set of episodes in chapter two where Jesus goes into Jerusalem. So so we've already got one tessera in place about the temple. Uh, what is the temple? The temple is actually Jesus. G- and so the temple is standing before her. So Jesus can say, worshiping God in spirit and truth. The spirit thus far has been connected with baptism. And so the baptismal overtones and undertones here are just are, are rich. How do we worship God in spirit and truth? I mean, talk to an evangelical, and it's, it's like in your vain imaginations. Uh, talk to Jesus, and he would say, get baptized. And go to church. Yeah. Right. Because the truth part is the word. Learn the promises of God that are sealed upon you. Actually, the way that the evangelical would explain this with spirit and in truth this is why you sing what you sing for 45 minutes. And then this is why you have a 35, 45-minute sermon. So spirit, truth. Yeah. yeah, spirit is the swaying back and forth. Truth is the listening to the sermon. Isn't that a, a fascinating... Uh, Again, um, robbing it not only of all of its meaning, but all of its 
richness regarding baptism. And reading it not out of the Bible, but but sort of superimposing this idea, you know, boy, that team has a lot of spirit. What does that mean? They're they're hopped up. They're ready to go. Um, well, like the the comment of the woman who said we wanted to go to a church that was alive. Right. What a sad deal. Tr- truth now, though, has been built up at the end of chapter three, where John talks, uh, what, whoever's talking at that point, talks about he who receives the witness has certified that God is true. And that truth is the saving intention of the entire divinity from eternity. So worshiping God in spirit and in truth, so baptism, you got the baptism side, but the truth element here is seeing God for who he is. Now, what's interesting is that as soon as Jesus says that, he goes into self-disclosure, and he says, ego a me. And we've talked about this before in this Bible study. Anytime Jesus usurps the phrase, ego a me, he's saying, I am Yahweh. And so what he says to the woman, you know, it says, I am he who is speaking to you or something like that. That's how your translation is. The way you got to see this is that Jesus is standing in front of her. He's pointing with both of his fingers back to himself. And he's like, this is Yahweh, the guy who's talking to you. And boom. So she sees the saving intention of God standing in the flesh right before her, offering her baptism, offering her the only door she's ever going to get into the true God. Jesus, he is the peephole into the heart of God, which is why the Samaritans could never, why they were worshiping what they don't know. And because they were worshiping what they don't know, this woman's guilt and her sin and her shame was going to follow her the rest of her life unless she did something about it. She had to find a way out of it by the law. And this is the only thing we are left with apart from Jesus. And trying to find your way out of that by means of the law is being in that silo looking for a an exit sign. There's no way to get out of there. Right. It, to please a God that you don't know. And I think that's a very important thing. The hidden God is a God you don't know. But he is the true God. And I and I appreciate this, this idea because sometimes we, we make the truth and the word synonymous. And there is, I mean, there that is accurate, but... Here in John especially, the truth is this revealed God in Christ. The locus is gospel. It is not the law. Now, the law, he brings her into the gospel through the law, which is good, right, and salutary. And that's not untruth. Right. It's right. not. In, in, in fact, the law is a proper expression of who God is as well. We don't, And that's in something important, too. When we talk about truth here in the word, we're not talking about abstraction still. The law is a proper expression of who God is and who God created us to be. It's, these aren't just, you know, I, I don't want you to murder people because I just think it's a good idea today. No, it's, 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 it is baked into his nature. But also baked into his nature is his, is his complete love for us, his sacrificial love for us. That's baked into his nature as well. His love for us is not his alien work. That's important for us to understand. Yes. It's interesting how if you go back to John chapter 1, in verse 24, you see the introduction of the Pharisees coming to John. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, Pharisees again. You also see baptism, because they're asking, why are you baptizing? You see that in John chapter 4. And then they ask of John, they say, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Because they asked John the Baptist if he was the prophet back in verse, what, 21. It's like he's standing before this woman. The Pharisees were totally clueless here because of the hidden God. And now you've got Jesus standing in front of the Samaritan woman. I mean, I don't think we can emphasize that enough. Samaritan woman. Of, Sinner. Of ill repute. And he answers the question when they say, are you the prophet? He is essentially saying... Yeah. That's me. I'm the prophet. Capital P. And and maybe that helps us decode why he retreated from the Pharisees because they could not stand to hear that. They would have taken up stones to kill him. Which is interesting because they have they they worship what they know, but it is still leading them astray uh, because they have perverted true worship. The Samaritans have false worship, but the Pharisees have perverted true worship and made it 
even more deadly. Isn't that fascinating? The Pharisees try to snuff out the light. Votini runs to town to tell everybody about the light. It really comes down, and I think you said this uh, before in a, in a previous podcast, Pastor Oakry, or maybe you said it, Pastor Bruce, I don't know who said it. It comes down to belief and unbelief. That's what you got. That's the great dividing line. Since we're dipping back into chapter 1, John 1, 14, uh, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. truth. How does John clarify that? For the law was given through Moses. Uh, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He goes on and says, No one has ever seen the Father, the only begotten one who is in the bosom of the Father. This one has made him known. Again, you can't overemphasize that apart from Christ, God is entirely unknowable, whether to a Pharisee, to a Samaritan, to a pygmy, to a, uh, an atheist, an agnostic. I mean, Jesus is the thing. And, you know, when we bear witness, so this woman goes in and talks about, about whom? Jesus. Jesus saying, I'm going to pray for you, is not giving a witness. The only witness that is a true witness is to point to Jesus as the one who knows all things, forgives all things, and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But I think it is interesting because we had talked a little bit about how she gives more than she gave to Nicodemus. I think she, he gave less to Nicodemus maybe because he knew. He, he knew the truth. And the wonderful thing with him is that we do see him backfilling. He's like, he starts to think about it. He's like, well, I do know an awful lot of scripture. And oh, all of this stuff starts to fit. This woman needed more because she did not know. And it is interesting. Jesus gives us what we need to be his. And let's apply this to the situations that, are, that, w- that we live in and that our people live in. How often do we feel like our witness is in vain? We don't see the results that we want to see. You know, did Nicodemus get baptized the night that he had a conversation with Jesus? We don't know. It doesn't, didn't seem super promising. Did this woman get baptized by the disciples the day she had a conversation with Jesus? Seems like she might have, or at least within the next couple of days, and lots of people in Samaria did as well. This is all in the Lord's hands, how this goes down. Even Jesus, right? I mean, even Jesus standing before Nicodemus can't make it happen. Like, you can't wrench faith out of him. We're just called to be faithful in our witness, and that faithfulness always points to Christ. Right, and you think about Noah being that witness for a hundred years with how many converts? His own family. Clearly, the disciples are doing the baptizing and unwritten in the text, but but there is at some point Jesus says, baptize this woman. And which brings us, because right when he says, ego me, it says, just then the disciples show up and they're like, what? What is happening here? And can you? We am- leave for just a few moments to get some food, and this is what happens. It could turn into a Seinfeld episode. Yeah. Can you imagine their consternation when Jesus says, "We're going to be baptizing some folks here"? My ministry in Judea doesn't stop in Judea. The ministry of baptism does not stop with the Jewish people. It is for all or genders believe right or genders and and we're really seeing like for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him infants yeah right I know it's it's all there <laughs> those households and their their slaves and their infants are are coming to the waters too and why is that so hard though for people to grasp that God wants to give the gifts to everybody because of the sinful flesh wants to make it about itself and this is why a lot of evangelicals they have a hard time with say mentally deficient folks they don't know what to do with that if baptism means i'm now on team jesus and this individual can't say that at all think about that there is no comfort well, isn't the gambit that they make that the, the what an age of uh, there's an age of uh, accountability accountability right? Uh, and would they say perhaps that uh, somebody with mental retardation 
simply can never reach the age of accountability. And and isn't it the case that those who are under the age of accountability are counted innocent in a sense? No? No. It Okay. Age of accountability is um it's something that you won't. It's something that's referenced. Right, it's kind of whenever the kid's ready. Right. right? But, but even then it is such a um like a tertiary thing that you would hear referenced. You you would not hear that in sermons in Sunday school. You, you might hear it brought up in difficult cases like what I'm bringing up. My point is, why do people look at God as being so stingy with his gifts? Well, and, and even more, we're seeing that constantly. It's gift, 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 not an act of will. There's no act of will here. One of the best ways I've ever gotten traction on this issue is not to talk about infants, but to talk about the elderly. I was like, if, if, if my belief is an act of will, what about a person in bed with Alzheimer's? They are just as incapable in their mental capacity to believe in Jesus as an infant is. So are they damned? They're well past the age of accountability. At least it gives food for thought. Like there's other times and places in our lives where we're not mentally capable can I can I willfully believe in Jesus in my sleep? I mean, Luther's great on this. He's like, when you sleep, that's when all the sins come out and have their heyday in your mind, right? It's fascinating to me. It has to be a gift, and it has to rely on Christ. It, it can't rely on me making it work. I'm not making the waters well up. The waters are simply welling up within me. But I do love that the disciples come along, and they're just like, what are you doing, Jesus? This doesn't work for us. I forget, you know, we oftentimes just end the story here with the disciples going up and kind of being dummies, um, which they can sometimes often be. Um, we actually get a, a food discourse, which, you know, I often think, you know, the food discourse is John 6, but here we get an introduction to that, right? A tessera oh, sure. that's drawing us into the deeper discourse that's about to come in a couple chapters. The woman just says, I'm going to go tell folks about Jesus and what he did. And her main accus and her main point is that he accused me of my sin. Isn't that interesting? It's not that he loved me unconditionally. It's that he knew everything about me, which means the sin. He's like, he knew my sin. And I think then the the follow up point, and he didn't just walk away. <laughs> right? Which well, is which is a very Adam and Eve thing, right? He knew their sin, but he didn't just walk away from them. Well, and what's fascinating is everybody in town knew her sin too, but they walked away. Yeah. It feels like the dumbest evangelicalism yeah. er, uh, program, Yeah. right? Man, he knew. He knew what an awful person I was. Isn't that something? And everybody's like, that is something. I want to go talk to this guy. Don't you know how bad she is? I don't know. I don't know what drew them to him on that. But that they come. And then all of a sudden they're like, man, on account of all of this, we, we, we now believe not because of your witness, not because of your testimony, but because we witnessed it ourselves. Which is a wonderful picture of, of church. You are brought there by someone else, but you, you remain there because you constantly receive the goods. Jesus is in front of us in word and sacrament. But I, I do want to spend a little time on this eating discourse with the disciples because that kind of it's a kind of an interlude between those two pieces. But I have food to eat that you do not know about, which is very similar to what he how he started the conversation with the with the woman at the well. But now we transition from water to food. Well, I think there is something. You know, the food that Jesus talks about is his work. Uh, is it not? Yeah, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Right. So man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And here, uh, the very logos, the very word of God, who is foretold by the word of God, is himself both the giver of the food and the recipient of it in doing what God says. Yeah, and over in chapter 6, in verse 38, he says it essentially again, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, this is actually in another food context. He says, And this is the will of him who sent me. So he clarifies it here that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, that I will raise him up on the last day. I mean, my goodness, it, it, there's so many. I mean, this is bronze serpent stuff here. Looks to him, there will be healed, but 
Here it is, they will have eternal life, not just temporal life, be healed from a serpent bite, but have eternal life. There's a real interesting thing here happening with the term food. Um, Food for us is what goes in the mouth and goes out the other end, and it sustains us in our life. Um, The food of Christ, the, the, the food that he, if you will, has need of, is something that goes out that goes out from him and does something for somebody else, which is really very different, isn't it? I, I don't know where I want to go with this, but but I just want to make that observation. I, I'd like to unpack it kind of thinking this way, because so often we think about our Christian life as me doing good stuff, and we, we see the well, the source of that being me. I will it to be. Whereas Jesus is very clearly saying here, no, the food you need is the work I'm doing and I've done, and so again, when I, I mean I think about uh, I think That's about I think about Ephesians, we do good works prepared for us beforehand. The nutrients stored up in the food that we eat, which is Christ, you know, which is Christ's work, and then His work is manifested in our bodies. It's it's never our fruits; it's Christ's fruits grown through us and the good works come into us, Christ's good works come into us through his work. It's always his work. It never stops being his work. And so the the misunderstanding here, uh, or at least the thing that Jesus is playing with, is that the disciples come up and ask about the the food that he is going to take, and he responds with his food, but it's the food he gives rather than takes. Right. Yeah. It's his fulfillment of the law. It's his perfect obedience to God. Which means that, and again, if he's the fulfillment of it, we can't. We can't be the fulfillment of it, even even a little bit. And so when we live out the law in our lives, which we desire to do, it can only be done in Christ. And this nukes all these ideas of the virtuous heathen, because what what good work can you do apart from Christ? Not a one, because you don't have the food. It makes you kind of see the world, these unbelievers, as just kind of these emaciated skeletons. They're not fed. And you see death on them. And we who are nourished, Lord help us, if we hoard that food, we need to, we need to share it. So if there was an outline here on this portion that we've read from this chapter, you know, it goes from the Lord Jesus clarifying, because he is the truth, he clarifies for this woman what true worship is. Then he turns to his own disciples and he clarifies for them what really the vocation of a pastor looks like. And then just in the last little bit, and we would love some more details there, but for those two days, again, that he stays in Samaria, I'm sure the disciples had a hard time with that, though. Even though the Lord is correcting what the vocation of a pastor looks like, and as you said earlier, how God's gifts aren't located just within this boundary of Judah or what have you, and how it spills out through all the world, just as just as it says in Acts, from Jerusalem, Judea, and into Samaria, all of that, like a bomb blast going out, and that Jerusalem itself is the epicenter for this. Regardless, he goes from the woman to the disciples to this town. Again, clarifying, communicating, the light of the world. It, the pattern gets established here, absolutely. And, and the simplicity of it, um, which, you know, it's... Well, you're always learning, and sometimes things seem more obvious than not. But, you know, I, th- I think we know the First Corinthians discourse on this better than this discourse, which is Christ's own discourse on it, about reaping and sowing and not dividing the ministry of God, which makes sense in the light of what John said at the end of... John the Baptist said at the end of chapter 3, right? The the ministry of God is not divided or divisive. I am not pitting myself against Jesus or his disciples. We are in this together and he is he's the one with the spotlight. And doesn't Paul say the same thing, right? Why are you why are you talking about who baptized you? Uh, you are I mean the the baptism into Christ which is this unifying thing it brings you into the body of Christ is all in all. And I can imagine that those two days with those Samaritans were elucidating for the disciples on that notion. Obviously not perfectly so because they're still going to struggle with their own prejudices, with their own notions of what right and wrong are in this kind of 
occult sense, right? What makes you clean? What makes you unclean? Um, but a church is set up there, no doubt, and there was the the continuation of the truth. I mean, it's it's again going back to the seed form. It's planted. Seed is planted, begins to grow. Right, and you see it get picked up again in a little bit in Acts, where you hate, see some of that ministry in Samaria, and I mean that almost has to be an, an outpouring of this, right? And so the seed was planted, and then the church comes in. Uh, a little bit later. And different pastors water it as it go because and, and, God planted it. Yeah, and the harvest is there. And he, and, and I, I, I love to think, I mean, you know, when I came to Calvary, I came to a bunch of people who were, and I, I wasn't coming to a bunch of just newly planted Christians. I was coming to people who had been Christians their whole lives, right? Longer than you'd been alive. Yeah, and I, I don't get to sit there and be like, well, I'm your pastor, so I made you. You know, it's like, what a, what a, what a silly notion. I'm, I don't pit myself against the pastors who came before me. And I certainly don't pit myself against the pastors who come after me. Now, sadly, sometimes there is that temptation to make that distinction. Oh, I'm a, I'm a so-and-so man, or I'm a so... I mean, we, you can see that even in the church today. But pastorally, I say, well, I've come here and there's a, there's a lot of wheat that's getting close to its harvest. You know, the gray hairs on their head are proof of that. But there's plenty of new planting to be done, and there's plenty of watering to be done along the way, too. And so plenty of manure packing to make sure that they don't die off. Absolutely. So he's setting up the ministry in all of this too. And I think we've we've touched on that, but I want to be real explicit here. So we're seeing baptism and now we're seeing the ministry and he's helping the, he's helping the disciples. I mean, it's critical that this teaching comes to the disciples because they have to know who they are and they're sharing in something. And that's one of the reasons why Lutheranism does have a leg up is that we have these generational churches. We have these churches that, stretch back decades, sometimes even centuries, even even here in America, or at least, you know, more than a century. And what a thing that is to see about how God is pulling a people in a place through a shared history in a place. And that isn't to diminish, you know, a, a new church. New churches pop up too. But you do see sometimes they those church those churches struggle to survive past their initial uh, their initial pastor, their, that initial enthusiasm that brought everybody there. And, you know, you can come into a generational church and you can kind of be like, whew, you know, look at look at these folks. None of them are, are on fire or whatever, but, you know. A lot of snow on the roof. Yeah, you're like, when I see a field of soybeans, I'm not like, boy, look at how exciting that field of soybeans is. But I'm like, the, the harvest is coming. And I would encourage the people listening to this to look at their congregation that way. Just say, the harvest is coming. And, and it has to come because Christ has promised that it's coming. And that he's using your pastors to help nourish and grow that harvest. But just as we've seen throughout, right, it all comes back to Christ. It's not your pastor doing it. Your pastor is just the agent of that coming of Christ uh, into your midst. But but what a beautiful thing. And then, and then we get this in verse 41. And many more believed because of his word. That, that hearing, that receptiveness, we're going to shut up and listen. And it's not her word anymore. Initially, her word, which was really just confessing his word, uh, brought them in. But now it's just his word. This, we, we, we harp on this. And, and maybe you hear this and you just kind of roll your eyes and think, I mean, I, you, you talk about word and sacrament all the time. The reason we talk about word and sacrament all the time is because that's, that's Christ's obsession too. Word. And then that word with special promise placed on these physical things, water and baptism and, and bread and wine in the Lord's Supper, that is the place where his truth and his spirit come to bear on our life. And to try to find Jesus somewhere else is deadly. And and so let us be grounded in those things. It, it's not I, I get it. It may not it may not feel super thrilling. But the problem with thrills is that they, they never sustain. Yeah, and you're no better off looking for Jesus apart from word and sacrament. Uh, you're no better off than the Samaritans who worshiped what they did not know. Amen. I would say here as we conclude, it's beautiful how the conclusion that we have, the summarizing element that we have, that these Samaritans, however many there were, is given where it says, 
we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And that harkens back to what John the Baptist said when he pointed his finger at Christ and said, this indeed is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The testimonies match. Right. Or we think that this is the Savior of the world. Right. They, they know. Yeah. And I, and I love that confidence of faith, which we sometimes can feel a little hemming and hawing about. There's that. So the baptismal context, right? Behold the Lamb of God. Uh, baptismal context, John 3, uh, 16, right? For God so loved the world, that, the world that he gave his only begotten son. And here, interestingly, at the, it's at the very end of the statement, all the weight, all the weight in this, in Greek at least, is he is the Savior of the world. That's where the weight falls. And how meaningful that is to Samaritans outside of the boundaries of of, of Judea. Well, we've still got a little bit more in John chapter 4 to cover, but we're going to do that next time. We're going to leave you here, and we'll finish 4, and we'll finish 5. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to the Plucked Chicken Podcast with your hosts, Pastors John Bruss and Devin Kern. To discover more, go to thepluckedchicken.com or stjohnlcmstopeka.org.